Hello, and welcome to the Pragmatic Live podcast series, where we tackle the biggest challenges facing today's product management, product marketing, and other market and data-driven professionals with some of the best minds in the industry. I'm Rebecca Calajaris, Vice President of Marketing at Pragmatic Institute, and your host for this episode. Today, we are joined by Jonathan Lucky, Product Guru and Scrum Master at DAZN. Welcome, Jonathan. Oh, hi, Rebecca. How's it going? Thank you so much for having me. Jonathan is a longtime friend of Pragmatic, and through our time working together, we've seen your career, Jonathan, grow and change in a variety of ways. One of the newest being that now, instead of being a Charlotte guy, you're based out of the UK. So I thought it would be fun today to talk about how being an international product manager and working with an international team is different. But to start, why don't you give us a little bit of context about you and the zone? So we are a OTT, over-the-top um, sports media streaming company. So uh, we are live stream broadcasting uh, your favorite sports to any device, uh, whether that's your smart TV, your Chromecast, your Apple TV, your iPhone, uh, your laptop, whatever. Um, and we uh, operate uh, all over the world. So in the United States, for example, uh, one of the, the biggest things that we have, uh, we are the home of boxing in the United States. So if you've heard of famous boxers like Anthony Joshua, Canelo, uh, all of those types, um, those, those people are, are, are fighting each other, <laughs> boxing, um, and they're boxing, and we're live streaming that live to your device. In other countries, um, for example, in Canada, we actually um, do the NFL uh, NFL games as well. So um, you can watch your favorite NFL games on any device, uh, if assuming you're in Canada. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, that's what we do. And we have other aspects of the business that are around media, uh, media portals as well. So um, sports, sports is our thing, and that's what we're about. Great. Well, that sounds like fun. And I think that it would be really interesting as an international company and the different kind of sports you get to see in there. But um, so, okay. So what was the first thing you noticed that was different um, mm -hmm. when you moved there uh, to, to, to London and started working there and you have teams all over the world? Is that correct? Yeah, teams everywhere. Uh, probably name a country and we've, we've probably got some sort of presence there, even if it's small. Wow. Okay. So I think the first questions are probably just the logistics that pop in mind. How do you do that when everyone is in different time zones? You and I struggle to find the right time to do a podcast yeah. or a webinar with our time zone. How do you do that when there's so many people from so many places? Uh, it's definitely not easy. Um, the hardest part, like you said, is timing, um, especially when to have a meeting. So um, for example, um, we had uh, uh, I'd say when I was working on a different project and I was still in Charlotte, we had the designer, the design team was in Leeds in the UK. Um, a lot of the business stakeholders are were here in London, which is where the headquarters is. And then our dev team was actually in Charlotte, North Carolina. So what we found was that we had to always, uh, the idea was we said, okay, what were the common times that we all knew that we'd be around? <laughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> so we had the office so we knew that sometime, at least in the United States, we had a block of time between 9 a.m. and noon when we knew that everybody was going to be around. So we usually had that time period to be blocked out for time when we're all going to interact and communicate and talk. So it was usually during that time period that the teams would be having their sprint reviews. 
um, would be having their backlog refinements or we'd be having our um, retrospectives and reviews and things. So that way everyone always had an opportunity to join. Um, not always was that easy for some of our uh, folks that lived in other offices, like in say people that work in our offices in Japan, um, if they needed to be involved there. So often what we did um, is we were very big fans of recording meetings. So uh, we very often, in fact, I have a spurt review tomorrow. We've got people from all over the place that are very interested in what we're doing. They can't necessarily be there. So what we do is we record the meeting and then afterwards we share it to everyone and say, okay, here's the recording of that of, of it so that people are aware. So timing is always the hard part, but what we try to do is we though we understand what the windows are. We try to always schedule things where we need everybody during those windows, um, which is always tough. And then the people who can't make it, we just generally have a policy where we always try to record. Are there tools that have helped with this sort of cross-national collaboration that you're particularly fond of? Uh, yeah, actually, um, uh, well, so we use Microsoft Teams here, um, which you know some people like, some people like more or less than others. Uh, uh, it, it's funny, someone in the room heard me say, say Microsoft Teams and they started smiling at me as they walked by. <laughs> but um, uh, the, what I found is that uh, Microsoft Teams does have a really good recording tool built into it, um, which is nice. I think, it, uh, and what's really cool is that it records the session. And even if say you fall off of the session, it will still continue to record. Um, also, the rendering of the session is done um, using uh, using the cloud, so that way your computer's not getting, you know, is not burning up battery or energy or processing power doing the rendering because um, it's actually doing it in the cloud. Um, Zoom Zoom actually has a really good recording tool baked into it too, um, and that was really for its meeting tool. Um, GoToMeeting, if you use GoToMeeting, um, that actually, uh, I believe, has recording. And it's been a while since I've used GoToMeeting, as does um, WebEx. If you don't have recording capacity for your meetings, then um, if you're using a Mac, and also Windows has this too, has a built-in recording function where you can record your screen and your audio. Um, so you can look into that. So even if you don't have anything, you can at least just use the bare bones features that like your OS has. I, one of the things I like about Zoom too is that it also does a transcript, right? So it kind of gives people oh. options. You have listeners and readers and, and particularly if there's, you know, maybe not the whole meeting would be interesting to them, but there are pieces that gives them a little bit of an option. So, I was like, so from a logistics perspective, that makes sense. What about cultural differences? Those come into play as you work with uh, teams kind of spanning all over. Yeah, you know, it's um, funny enough, uh, we just had our um, internal Ag uh, agility summit um, uh, last month, just a few weeks ago, um, where, um, so we have about 30 agile coaches and scrum masters in the organization. And uh, we all try, if we can, to meet once a year. And uh, we basically discuss a lot of critical issues. And what we did is we did a half day workshop on cultural differences. Um, and we've particularly focused on what are the cultural differences that exist um, between all the different sites um, where we work. So we have a huge facility in Amsterdam. We have a huge facility in Poland. We have 
a large facility in Slovakia. We have a small facility in the United States. And then we have, for those who are just related to engineering, but then we have business facilities all over the world. <clears throat> and it was very interesting little things that we learned. So for example, um, feedback, um, when you provide feedback to people, um, Americans provide feedback in a very different way from say um, the Brits do or from say the Polish. And what we found was very often the Brits found were thought that um, that the that the Polish people didn't necessarily like them as much because the feedback was very um, how do you say direct? <laughs> so you know they'd show something and say this is really bad. This is a horrible requirement. This is dumb. This is stupid. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not. And it's not them being mean. It's not that they don't necessarily like that person or anything. It's that. Um, people in Poland tend to be a lot more direct about whether about whether something is good or bad when they're providing feedback. Um, whereas we found that the Brits might be way more subtle about their feedback. So then one of the things we found when we started studying that feedback is that maybe when um, people in the UK were giving feedback to the Polish team, they say you had maybe four items. So then they'd give positive feedback on two, uh, uh, they give positive feedback on two or three of the items and ignore the, the last item. And so the assumption would usually be that the last item was fine and that there were no complaints. But then actually it was the case that they didn't like, that the UK person didn't like the actual final item. And that's why they omitted it. So very often the UK to feedback tends to be a lot more subtle and indirect. Um, so that was an interesting culture, cultural difference. Um, another thing we found was the concept of high context cultures versus low context cultures. So, and it's very relative. So the a high context culture would be something, someplace like Japan, where there are lots and lots of social norms and social rules that are very often unwritten, unwritten or um, not necessarily codified. And so it's kind of one of those things where you just have to know. I think someone said that there is a, a word or a term in Japanese that stands for um, being able to read the feeling of the air in the room, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So, um, and it's kind of one of those things that you should just get. <laughs> and um, that's, that is something that, is, that can come very easy to someone that has grown up in Japanese society not so much to people who haven't. And so you have really, really high context societies where there's lots of rules and social norms that are not necessarily written down. Whereas you have low context societies, which a example of that is the United States, hmm. where a lot of things are made very clear and very open. And there's a lot of, um, uh, what's the word, open room for making you know, social mistakes and things like that. Um, and that's because the United States very much is a multicultural society. Um, and since its inception has always had to uh, encompass a, a different array of different social uh, social backgrounds and cultural backgrounds and, and bring them into its society. So you have to be able to make things very clear um, to people and also be very forgiving to people's social faux pas as well. And so we found that that was, um, when you're looking at that when it comes to working with people, um, you really actually have to think about, you know, certain certain things that um, you didn't realize that you're, you're in trouble for. So we try to do is say, how do we make that, how do we um, become very conscious 
um, about the the context or the or the lack thereof when it comes to working with and interacting with different people. Um, and the only way you can do that is just be by being very obvious about it and saying, you know, how I feel about this is this. Or um, as an American, you know, usually I interpret things like um, like this or like that. So it's it's very interesting, and and you have to remind everybody to be very um, aware of it and to express what how, what is that context of that event or that stimuli is um, in the from their perspective and to create an environment where people feel comfortable sharing that kind of that kind of thing is there anything you do to sort of help new people jumpstart that that understanding right or does everybody kind of go and and find the same potholes and figure it out or do you have you guys started to build a I don't even know what that would be. It's not like a cultural wiki, but some, but some, <laughs> some, uh, something to help new people uh, learn from what you've, what you've had to learn. Well, one of the things that we've started doing is we actually do this cultural um, differences workshop um, oh. for everyone. So we've, um, uh, what we hope to do is actually to run this workshop at every single office um, in the organization. And then um, what we try to do as agile coaches is to instill a culture of trust and openness. So, um, for example, whenever we do postmortems on, say, an event or when we're doing retrospectives or maybe we're reviewing the product, some of the first things we try to set the tone to say um, is that, A, things are not necessarily going to be perfect. That's totally fine. Um, uh, also, um, anybody can speak how they feel without fear of repercussion. So um, this is a trusted space. Um, the only way how we can get better is if we can speak very candidly. So if we're saying that something is bad, that doesn't, that's not an attack on someone's character. That, that is us saying, okay, this is how we need to improve. So one of the things that we try to do is, A, obviously doing those workshops, but um, what we try to do is any sessions um, that we're in, we try to stress at the very beginning, say, this is a, um, I know it's a bit cliched, but this is the safe place. You can speak your mind. Um, you know, it's better that we try and understand the realities and how you feel and how things are working um, than us to just kind of hold that stuff in. And we should all feel very comfortable uh, sharing that. One of the things that comes up in our classes sometimes is how you may need to change your handoffs, things like requirements mm. and other documents when you have offshore development teams. Mm. Um, and I, I think the old adage is, you know, the, the more offshore the team is, the more you have to document. Have mm. you guys found that or have you found a way to keep sort of that just enough documentation, agile feel and, and working with the offshore teams? Yeah, I could de definitely say it's very challenging because again, when it comes to cultural differences, um, some, some, some places what we find is that they need a lot of that, that documentation, a lot of that detail, um, because that's kind of a, a certain need, like things need to be very well identified and spelled out. Um, so what we try to do, um, what we do at the zone is we do encourage um, and, and practice a lot of people physically going and seeing each other. So, um, which I know we're trying to do, we talk about how we need to do this remotely. Um, but one of the, I'd say one of the best things that we do at the zone is we, we do encourage our product managers um, that work with teams in say in Poland or teams in the United States 
or teams in Slovakia, um, you know, they regularly go and physically meet and talk and interact, um, even at least in the beginning, because um, just doing that kind of starts breaking down that barrier of, oh, you need to spell everything out to me. Um, the other thing that you can do is you can start instituting certain things, certain trust frameworks. Um, if that's a term, I don't know if, what the correct term is, but I like to call them trust frameworks. So for example, um, having a definition of ready and a definition of done is effectively a social contract that says, okay, here are the things that tells us that this requirement is ready to be implemented. Um, and, or you can, or definition of done is if these things are all happening. So for example, code reviews, uh, code is commented, documentation, whatever the things that, that, in, that you say, okay, this is the things that make this thing done. Um, then you don't need to have all that detail spelled out in every single ticket because you, because everyone has agreed that this is the social contract that says, well, these are the things we should be doing in so we shouldn't have to spell that out in every single ticket, for example. So sometimes it's just about um, regularly creating an understanding. The other thing is, is to um, when uh, we talk about our, our what we're trying to build as problems that need solving and outcomes, and we talk about things as like objectives and key results, um, you can then, now you don't have to spell out every single line item in your every single ticket. Because if we say, well, this is the outcome that we want, uh, we want the user to be able to get to where they need to be within less than 30 seconds, just kind of pulling something out of my mind there. Um, what you're basically saying is we don't, we, we don't need to sit there and say, put a button in the upper left-hand corner, it needs to be at an angle and needs to work like this at every breakpoint. You don't need those details. What we care about is the outcome. And then everything from there just becomes a conversation of how do we improve. So um, I would definitely say create trust frameworks like definition of done, definition of ready, that everybody can agree on. Um, and then what you can do is talk about instead of handing like line by line item features to these teams, talk about what is the objective of this? What are we trying to achieve? Here's the outcome we want out of this particular piece of work, and then entrust the team to actually come up with a solution. And sure, you may not necessarily get line by line exactly what you want, but in my experience, you typically get something better than what you were already thinking of in the first place. Great feedback, great advice. Um, what is the one thing that's maybe surprised you the most about working with such a geographically dispersed team? Surprised me the most. Good question. Um, I, I would say what surprises me the most is that the reality is what I find when I spend, I spend a lot of time interacting with lots of different teams in the organization. And what I found is that everyone wants the same thing. <laughs> and very often, um, so to kind of talk about it is, you ever heard of the, the, the story of the Tower of Babel from the Bible? Um, and the, if you've ever heard of that story. And um, in the book, The Mythical Man Month, uh, the author talks about that story of the Tower of Babel um, in the context of engineering and building a product. 
And one of the things that happened in that story was, for those who don't know, is that people in some ancient times were trying to build this tower all the way up to the heavens so that they could try and meet God. Um, and then God came along and made it so that everybody spoke different languages. And then they all, then the project failed because no one spoke the same language anymore. <laughs> so the idea behind that, about that, behind that concept is that when you're not in the same room together um, all the time, then naturally what begins to happen is you start making assumptions about people, um, about, about people and their intentions and what they're doing and why they're doing it. And very often we humans tend to make negative assumptions about those, about those things. Those people over there have no idea what they're doing. Um, and so, you know, you, have, you hear these conversations with different disparate people in different offices, but they're all having the same conversation about the same exact thing. <laughs> and you realize that actually every, all of these people want the same exact thing. Everybody wants to collaborate. Everybody wants more communication from the other side. Everybody wants um, the product to be better. Um, everybody wants to improve. Um, and so very often in organizations, we make assumptions that people don't want those things. But my experience, at least at the zone and many of the organizations I've worked with, um, that's not the case, actually. People want to improve. People want to work together. So, um, and that surprises me. And because of that, then now that says is actually we got to say, well, what we need to create frameworks, we need to create environments that accentuate that, that remove those negative assumptions and replaces it with, yeah, we all want the same thing. We actually want to work closer together. I think that's what surprises me. We all we all generally want the same thing, no matter where you are, or what culture you are. I think it's I think that's a good point. And I think it's a mistake when we don't assume that everyone else has the the same goals of quality and the same good intentions. Like that, that sounds a little bit naive, but mm -hmm. if I, if I go in thinking you're trying to get me or that you are not on the same page or you're slacking, I can make that happen. Right. Just by yeah. coming in with that approach and yes. um, it, it's never going to be successful that way. And it is a big yeah. mistake when you assume that, you know, the sort of worst intentions and uh, the worst feelings not feelings, but the, the worst approach from other people. I think it, it yeah. really hurts a team's culture. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Um, even when you're not talking about international groups of people, it happens even with groups of people that are co-located. They just might not be working in the same team. You know, we do um, something called health checks, um, which is something where we just kind of check and see how teams are doing, the health of that team, what is their feeling, what is their pulse. Um, and what we found was that you know, one team kind of, they always, these, these two groups, they seem to kind of butt heads a lot. And we were like, but when we actually did health checks of these two groups, they had the same exact pains. Mm. <laughs> yep. They blamed each other for those pains, but they actually had the same exact pains. And mm. so um, that kind of revealed to us, well, actually, if they're feeling the same pains, they're actually really what we need to do is have a conversation about how can they work closer together to solve their joint pains as opposed to assuming that the other side is the one causing their pains, you know? Right. No, I think that's a good way. Of, it's a good thing to remember to remember for all of us working with teams to you say whether they're co-located or dispersed or anywhere else. Um, it's, it's interesting to me how often the, the groups fighting are both trying to solve the same problem. 
right? Yeah. Their priority is the same problem to solve and, um, and they just don't have the perspective of the other side. Yeah, absolutely true. Absolutely true. Which seems a lot of what you guys try to do um, to make this sort of international team a success is to provide that understanding and that context upfront. Um, so it's at a yeah. more core base level so that the individual interactions don't need to carry all that baggage because you've, you've kind of built it into the beginning, which I think helps exactly. you streamline and expand. So that's exciting yeah. stuff. Exactly. If, once, if you can get the relationship going between people um, and the interactions um, and it's little things like I think we talked about in the webinar the other week. It's like always have a webcam. Um, mm-hmm. Let's um, let's always make sure we have good microphones and let's try to talk to each other every week. And <clears throat> sometimes with with sessions and meetings, um, I know that it's not necessarily the most efficient thing to do, but I often say uh, encourage there to be a little bit of banter and joking and talk about, you know, how's your wife and how are the kids and how's the husband and, you know, those kinds of things, mm-hmm. because it's important that we have to recognize that we are all, that we're people. And so once you have the relationship going and once you have frameworks of, of ways of trusting each other, then you actually find that you don't have to have exhaustive requirements for every single thing you're trying to do. It just becomes conversations. And, and that, that alone makes the entire product development process significantly faster, easier, and less painful. Yeah, definitely more enjoyable. Yeah. All right, Jonathan, this was a fantastic conversation and I really appreciate your time. Is there anything else you want to share with our listeners while you have them captive? Oh man, a captive audience. So I can keep them here for a long time. (laughs) (laughs) So many things I could share. Um, I, I guess the biggest thing um, is when it comes to working with people remotely is to touch them as much as you can um, by voice, by voice. Um, <laughs> when you're working with a, with a group of international people, um, touch them as much as you can, talk to them, have conversations, interact, um, you know, try to create as much of an effective face-to-face communication as you can, um, you know, uh, if you can, I know always budgets don't accommodate for this. Um, try to at least see these people or bring these people together in a room at least once per year, as often as money will allow, um, because you want to create that relationship between them. Because once people have a camaraderie, a relationship, and they work together, everything else, um, the cultural differences, um, the interactions, the work, everything else becomes that much easier. Great advice. And I have to say just a small thing that we found here is that yeah. um, it's really hard to have a, a deeper meeting, like a brainstorming or a deep discussion with sort of mixed attendance, right? Yes. So if there's yes. 10 people in the room and there's six people on a comp, you know, that, have, that are tele-attending, that, that, you know, those, those six that are tele-attending, it's really hard um, for them to track yes. and participate. So we've actually yes. have, even though like, you're right next to me, uh, we're all going to jump on and, and do it all remotely. And then the yes. conversation becomes far more fluid. So it, it seems weird and counterproductive because you're missing that energy, but it's so hard when there's mixed attendance. Yeah. You know, you, you really brought up an interesting thing. That's exactly what um, my NBA team um, used to do is that we had only about two people that worked remotely. But what we did is we said, we'll always um, just kind of have 
have um, just all do the meeting remotely. So that way everybody can kind of do things online. Mm -hmm. That way you don't have side conversations that the people online can't hear. Um, what that particular team took it upon themselves to do is they had an all remote day at least once a week. Because <clears throat> what the feedback that mm. they um, that they said, one of the feedback that the people uh, who were online said is that they missed out on the hallway conversations that would happen and the side chats. So what they would do is at least once or twice a week, the entire team would all be remote together. And so um, that way they can, that way those hallway chats would happen within Teams or Slack or whatever they were using. And that worked out really well, just to kind of, again, create as much of that, just people being mindful about the people that aren't physically in the room. I think that also gives you a good perspective. Like, I didn't realize yeah. just how hard it was to have those mixed meetings until I was one of the virtual attendees. And I was like, yeah. wait, what? <laughs> um, so it helps you understand the different tools, too. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Jonathan, as always, a pleasure to have you on. Yeah, anytime, Rebecca. Always happy to be around. <laughs> Great. All right. That does it for today's episode. Thanks everyone for listening. And don't forget to join us next week when we tackle another great topic designed to help you elevate your product, your company, and your career. <laughs>